are doing this series in part because this fall marks the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims' first Thanksgiving, which was in 1621. So it's 2021, 1621, it's 400 years, and uh, this is a big deal, I think. Uh, but you don't, I don't know about you, but I have not seen a lot about this on the news. You think this should be celebrated, this should be all over the place, uh, but so far it really isn't. I've seen things um, online, you know, d- disparaging Thanksgiving, talking about things as uh, just a bunch of legends. Um, it seems like some people are just committed to not wanting to see anything, anything good about our, our past. But I think it's important for us to, to look back, and especially as uh, we think about what a big theme it is in Scripture, the idea of, of thankfulness and gratitude. It is all over the pages of Scripture. But as we get into this, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, 400 years ago and then the pilgrims and the first uh, Thanksgiving as we think about this uh, and they're coming over. So we think about this, and maybe it's been a while since you had this you know, lesson back you know, in grade school and how much you remember and how well uh, your teacher did. Uh, but you have the, the Mayflower here. It's a painting of the Mayflower. And we know that the, the pilgrims came over, but sometimes we get confused. Okay, there's, there's Protestants, there's pilgrims, there's Puritans. You know, we've heard these things, and, and well, what is what, and why are they coming over here? And I thought that's kind of a good place to start, because we have to think of why did the pilgrims want to come over? Because it really was grounded in their conviction as, as Christians. These were very dedicated, very, very biblical Christians. That doesn't mean that we would agree with absolutely every belief that they had, but the core beliefs, and we would. I mean, they definitely believed Jesus Christ is the, the God-man, that the Bible was the uh, word of God, that you're saved by grace alone, through, received through faith alone, that it was in Christ alone that we're saved, and we need to order our lives according to Scripture. And it was especially that idea of needing to order our lives and our worship according to Scripture that caused them to want to come over to this, this new world and be uh, the first people to be, to be over here. But if you think of this, of all the people that claimed to be Christians, uh, at least in, in Western Europe at the time, uh, you, had, you had Roman Catholics and then you had Protestants. So in the time of the, the Reformation, uh, those that at the end of the day ended up not being the Roman Catholics were, were the Protestants. And so you had various different Protestant groups. And in England, you had the Church of England. And so Henry VIII, he had separated away from the Catholic Church. And for him, it was not as much because of real religious uh, conviction, but he wanted a divorce, and the Pope wouldn't give him one. So he ended up saying, okay, there's these other groups that are leaving the Catholic Church, and they did that. And over time, they actually developed uh, some, you know, a good uh, theology in the Church of England relatively. Uh, but there were still areas of improvement, and a lot of the, the worship and a lot of the, uh, the, the form of worship especially still to many Christians looked uh, very much like the, the Catholic worship that they had. And so they looked at some of these elements and they said, you know, we, we need to do better than this. This is still not biblical. There's too many additions uh, to what we're doing that are not found in Scripture. And so within the, the Protestants that were there in the uh, Church of England, if you think of a big circle, there's a subset that were called the Puritans. At least that's the label that they were given by their enemies at first. Because, oh, you Puritans, you think you're so much purer than all the rest of us. And they wanted, to, they wanted to purify the Church of England more and to really get away from anything that, that wasn't grounded in Scripture and that wasn't biblical. 
So if, again, if you think of a big circle, you have Protestants. Within that is the, the Puritans. And if you're in the small groups that we have with going through gentle and lowly, there's quotes by a lot of Puritan authors. Uh, we view the Puritans as actually they're really good Christians with some really warm, good theology. Uh, and so uh, really us as Baptists, we actually uh, derive our heritage. Um, if you go back, it's from the, the English Puritans. So you have the Puritans, but then within the Puritans, there's another smaller circle. This would be the separatists. And so the separatists were some of the Puritans that said, you know what, we can't even remain in the Church of England. Instead of trying to purify it from within, we just need to come out of this. We need to separate and we need to uh, just form our own congregations, not be a part of the Church of England which was a problem for uh, the Church of England because if you were born in England, you were made a part of the Church of England. Uh, so a lot of the separatists uh, sometimes would, would leave to go other places, and we're going to see that's what uh, the ones that were called the Puritans ended up leaving. They first went to Holland before they came over to the New World. So Purita- you have Protestants, Puritans, separatists, and they, they would separate uh, but then pilgrim, pilgrim is someone that goes on a pilgrimage. They travel, they go to a, a new place. And so the smaller group within the separatists is with the pilgrims, that they left, some of them came over here to America. First they went to Holland and then over here. So the pilgrims were Puritans, but they were a smaller subset of that. And they had decided um, that they needed to, to leave uh, most of the Mayflower pilgrims were from a congregation of separatists from uh, Scrooby, which was a, t- a tiny English village in northern Nottinghamshire in England. And in 1608, they left England and they went to Holland because they were seeking religious freedom. They wanted to be able to worship in the way that they thought Scripture was dictating I think it's important to realize when they talked about religious freedom, they didn't necessarily mean just worship any old way that you want. It was more specific that it was to worship according to the way that the Word of God instructed them to worship. Now, you may agree or disagree with the way they interpreted uh, that, but that's how they viewed it. Uh, They wanted the freedom to be able to worship according to what they viewed as uh, Scripture dictating how they, they should worship. And so they, um, 1608, they went to Leiden in Holland. And so they were there for about uh, 12 years. It was quite a long time. So this was actually their first kind of pilgrimage. And while they were over there, they had religious freedom, but it wasn't a good permanent fit. Because, well, for one thing, it was hard for them to, uh, to make a living. They had to take some pretty uh, menial jobs to kind of just kind of scrape by. They were in a culture that wasn't quite uh, their, their own. Um, and they also found it, over time, hard to maintain their English identity as well, too. Uh, that, you know, they're in a different culture. Their kids are growing up in the surrounding culture, being influenced. Uh, they saw, you know, negative influences on their kids. And they eventually decided, okay, this isn't a good long-term situation for us. And after lots of prayer and uh, times of uh, calling for days and and times of of fasting and and praying over the course of the years, they decided that they wanted to uh, find a way to get over to the new world and to uh, start fresh over here. 
and there was a lot of uh, issues. It was tough to do this. This was a, a crazy uh, thing to try and uh, be able to afford to you know, charter uh, vessels to take them on this huge journey and come over, and how would this happen? Uh, but they eventually were able uh, to do this. They chartered ships in arrangement with a group called the Merchant Adventurers, uh, which ended up not being 100% uh, reputable characters. Um, but they started off in August 5 of 2020, and they actually were two ships. We're familiar with the Mayflower. There was another smaller ship called the Speedwell, and they started off with these two different ships in this uh, small group, but they just got going, and the Speedwell it started leaking like a sieve. So they had to turn around, try to do repairs. They took off again, and then the speedwell was still leaking, and they, just thought, they decided this ship is not seaworthy. We've got to turn around. And so then they just set up on the Mayflower. They had to leave uh, a bunch of the people behind. In their arrangement with the uh, merchant adventurers, uh, they also put a bunch of uh, other people on the ship to send over with them. They weren't thrilled about this. So you end up with a group of, uh, it was 102 passengers that were on the Mayflower coming over. And so about half of those are from this uh, congregation of uh, separatists that had been from Scrooby and, and then from Leiden. And the others they called strangers that were uh, part of, you know, kind of forced upon them and they were part of the group too. Um, after a while, they realized that the, uh, the speedwell might have even been kind of sabotaged, that some of the people you know, financing it maybe didn't, or the captains didn't want to make the voyage, and so they uh, did some things to cause that to happen. And that actually ended up being really quite a tragedy because they finally took off in September 6, and this has a chain reaction of them arriving much later than they wanted to arrive. As I said, there were 102 passengers uh, that were headed over. This included 18 married couples and 35 children and teens. And you think about the Mayflower, we, you know, we should not think of some gigantic boat here. It was, it was not uh, a huge boat. And of the 102 uh, passengers in the area in the, where they would have had their, their quarters uh, was about the size uh, square footage of half a basketball court. So imagine packing 102 people into the size that's about half of a basketball court, and they're going to be down there. They weren't on the top. If you're on top, a lot of times you're danger being swept overboard with the waves and everything like that. So they spent time down there, and this was not a quick uh, voyage either. Remember, too, they're down there. There is uh, minimal ventilation. There's no indoor plumbing. Okay, so you're crammed together like this. Uh, the waves are pushing you. You're rocking back and forth. People are not used to sailing. There's seasicknesses. Uh, so there is all kinds of uh, odors coming all over the place and different things. Uh, there's animals that they're bringing over too. Uh, so, and they were, the speed that they went, at one point they broke the mast and it, they had lots of trouble. And their trip over, they averaged two miles per hour crossing the Atlantic to come over. It took about uh, 65 days um, making their way over. And so they finally arrived in present-day Cape Cod, which was not where they were aiming for. They were aiming south of there, but they ended up Cape Cod uh, November 11th, 1620. And they spent some time scouting different areas, and they finally went ashore on December 23rd 
2020. This is December, okay? So this is much later than they had wanted to get here. And so you think of what would be the challenges of arriving in New England in December, uh, near uh, Christmas time. This is the Plymouth colony. We think of you know, Plymouth Rock. Uh, so they arrived later than expected. And also because uh, the area was much uh, latitude-wise, was south of you know, where they had been in England. You know, England is actually, latitude is quite a bit higher, but because of the ocean currents, it's not as cold as it would be. Uh, but they assumed, because uh, this area being lower in latitude, it was kind of even with like Spain and Italy. So they kind of expected more of like a Mediterranean climate, you know, and surprise, surprise. Uh, no, you are going to have cold, wet winters. And so they arrive, and uh, it, was, it was a tough winter. It was I mean, tough as an understatement. I mean, they didn't have any housing. Uh, they could try to slap together a, a few houses, but they're doing this, you know, in the, in the middle of winter. And so the early, you know, kind of houses that they were able to get together were uh, just a bunch of um, kind of basically saplings put together and slathered with mud and with some, like, thatched roofs. They would spend a lot of time trying to, you know, stay on the Mayflower while it, while it was still there. But one of the things uh, that was that because the bay um, by Plymouth that they were in uh, was very shallow, it's not like the Mayflower could come right up to the shore. And the longboat that they have a lot of times uh, was needed to use by the crew or taken to other places. So there were oftentimes where to get from the, the Mayflower to the shore and back, they had to wade through the bay uh, in water, you know, up to their up to their thighs, uh, frigid water in, in winter. And so with all these things, they didn't have, you know, there was no time to plant crops, you know, the uh, uh, things that they could hunt, you know, the, the birds had, you know, migrated and they weren't there. And so there was a lot of death that first winter. And I've always heard that, how many people died, but really thinking about some of these statistics and letting the sink in, uh, wow, just the tragedy that was there. Of, as I said, there was 102 people that came over on the Mayflower. And of those, 52 of them died before the spring. So it's over half of the group didn't make it to spring. This included 14 of the 26 heads of families. One set that really got to me, there were 18 married couples that came over on the Mayflower and uh, in that, that first winter, by the time spring rolled around, there was only three of those couples that were still intact. There were only four adult women that survived. It's crazy to think about. So there was just all kinds of, all kinds of death. I mean, they caught pneumonia, a variety of different sicknesses and illnesses. So they went through this really um, hard, very hard winter. Uh, spring rolls around. They still had problems. They had the wrong types of seeds for the wrong crops for the area. Uh, they had to wait for you know, spring for the, the fowl to return. You know, eventually, you know, there was an Indian named Squanto that, that helped them and learned how to uh, uh, plant the right type of things, um, taught them how to even like uh, to fish and catch eels. Um, which I'm not real excited about eating eels, you know, but I guess it beats starving to death. So, and, and then they go through the summer and you get to the next fall 
Because remember, they came over, this was late 2020, and so by the next year, they have a good harvest. Uh, things are, are going better for them. They think about the hardships they came through, and that's where they have the celebration that we think of as, as the first Thanksgiving. Now, there's a lot of embellishments over the years that have come when we think of you know, Thanksgiving and the, what the first Thanksgiving was like. found out a lot of those actually come from a historical novel that was uh, written in the, in the 1800s by uh, Jane Austen. It was a different Jane Austen, but it was, I guess, a, a kind of a historical fiction, almost like a Hallmark, you know, movie in a novel, you know, and it talked about the romantic lives of the different, you know, pilgrims and all this, and a lot of people's memory uh, is based on that. Uh, but it's not all, all fiction. We don't want to be revisionists and just say we've scrapped the whole thing, but we have to think, what do we actually know about the first Thanksgiving? Um, I spent a lot of time uh, doing some research. I read a, a good book on this called The First Thanksgiving by Robert Tracy McKenzie. He's a professor of history at, at Wheaton College. And it was really interesting to look about what can we actually know about the first Thanksgiving and, and what happened there. There's a lot of pictures, uh, that, but we don't have any paintings from the time. These are all done later. And so even some of these paintings... Uh, that we have, you know, may not be accurate. Their houses, like in the background here, they did not have log cabins put up at this time. They did not have tables and chairs like this. They probably barely had uh, any type of, uh, you know, tables or chairs. The, the houses that they would have had by this point were few and, and pretty small. Uh, the only thing a painting like this kind of gets right is there were uh, pilgrims and there were Indians uh, and that it was outside, and there would not have been room to do this inside, uh, but it was probably more like a, uh, more like a big uh, picnic and celebration. We don't even know what the pilgrims actually look like. We have no written descriptions of them. The only painting that we have of one of the original pilgrims is from one of them done about 30 years later after he returned to England. So we don't even know if the clothing he's wearing there reflected what they had. You know, we think of them with the, the dark clothes and the buckles and everything. Uh, and some of that came from um, later paintings and, and different things. And it said that actually the, the buckles, the pilgrims probably wouldn't have been into that because they weren't into anything that looked like jewelry. On the flip side, they have records that some of their clothing was different colors. Uh, we think of them being all in black. And that might not even be the case because this would have not have been a, a, a solemn day. This would have been a day of a kind of festivity. And it wasn't even an official like church service. And so they might have had on, you know, more brighter, happier colored clothing. So we don't know exactly when this took place in the fall of 2021. Um, Plymouth's longtime governor, William Bradford, uh, he actually never mentions a, a 1621 Thanksgiving celebration in his uh, book on the Plymouth Plantation. Uh, so this, of course, in fall of 1621. Uh, the only first-hand surviving account that we have of a celebration happening in 1621 comes from a letter by Edward Winslow, who is Bradford's younger assistant, and it was published later. And it's a, it's a grand total of 115 words. And there's some other things from later on, but as far as like direct testimony from someone that was there, uh, this is what we have. And I'll bring this up and let me read this to you. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling to go hunt some birds. 
so that we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four, in one day, killed as much fowl as, with a little help aside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest, their greatest king, Mesosot, and some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. So that's the, the historical account that we have, which actually does give us a good amount of information. Uh, so we can see that uh, this was, they're, they're celebrating the harvest, they're having a time of rejoicing. Uh, it doesn't, it's not technically a, uh, like a church Thanksgiving service. They would have those type of things too. They, they didn't have many um, holy days that they observed. Uh, they observed the Sabbath, and they would occasionally have a day of prayer fasting or a day of special day of Thanksgiving. Uh, but that was more like, okay, you go to church, and you, you pray, and you worship. And this would be different than that. But based on their Christian background, we know they're praising God. They're thanking Him. They're being grateful for this. And also the tradition of the, uh, the Indians joining with them, we see that in this account as well. So there were 51 colonists that were part of this. Uh, remember, there were 102 that came over, 52 died, but there was a baby that was born on the way over and that survived, so there was 51 of them. Only four women, though, so uh, that's, a, that's a lot going on there. Um, the adult males actually now outnumbered the females uh, five to one. Uh, children were now about half of the group, so if you think of kind of the makeup of this, and this is a little side thing, but I, at one point in the book, it listed some of the names of some of the children, and I thought this was great. So if some of you are thinking kids' names, uh, here's some, some of the options. Uh, some of the children listed, uh, one, I assume a girl, I don't know, was named Remember Allerton, so first name of Remember, Resolve White, Humility Cooper, and the two Brewster boys, Love and Wrestling. So you want to be love or you want to be wrestling? Yeah, wrestle for that. So, <laughs> so, so if there were 90-some Indians that came, that would mean that there were more Indians at the celebration than there were, than there were the pilgrims that came together. Um, we don't know if they were invited, if they dropped by. It was obviously they in, in, um, enjoyed you know, being together. The Indians came and brought five deer, so that was great. So we know they at least had deer. We know they had some kind of fowl. We assume turkey, but it doesn't actually say turkey. And we don't know that. There was all kinds of different uh, types of fowl in the area. So it could have been duck. It could have been different things. Some have said that actually a lot of the other type of you know, ducks and geese would have been easier to, to, for them to shoot than, than the turkey. Um, but it also says there were a lot of turkey in the area too. So we don't know that there weren't turkey, but we don't know that there were for sure either, um, at, least, at least for them. Some things that we know that they didn't have that you might be planning on, uh, there were no sweet potatoes, okay, didn't have those in the area, no cranberry sauce, okay, they didn't have the sugar for that, no pumpkin pie, they couldn't make that, they wouldn't have the crusts and all this. Everything would have been boiled or roasted. Uh, they also didn't really have, you know, silverware. Maybe there's a few knives around, but that's probably about it. So think of more like a big, you know, picnic, kind of eating with your hands and doing that. They might have also had fish, clams, um, turnips, 
eels. So if you're thinking about, hey, you want to invite somebody over for a good old-fashioned Thanksgiving, you know, serve up some turnips and eels <laughs> and see if they, they come back to you for that. <laughs> but you know, they also had deer. Um, so it was really kind of this autumn harvest festival that we have, although we can know that the pilgrims would have given thanks to the Lord uh, through this. Um, so it's interesting to look at this, and there's more we can talk about, but we've talked about this because because of this, and eventually, you know, this celebration of Thanksgiving, which took off in New England, and then, you know, got in its mindset connected to this, this first Thanksgiving, uh, we have this as part of our history and part of our, our thinking. And it's just good for us to take time to really think about what we're grateful for and what the Bible says. And ultimately, Thanksgiving is not important because the pilgrims celebrate it, but because it's a, it's a major biblical theme. And when I start talking about that this week, and just to realize that first and foremost, giving thanks glorifies God. If we think about this and the purpose for it, the ultimate thing is we do this because it glorifies God, and that's what everything is all about. That's our purpose. That's why we're created. We did a whole series this fall on, on glo- the glory of God and what it means to glorify God. And one of the things that we said is that to glorify God is to to magnify him, to magnify his worth. And therefore, Psalm 69, verse 30, I think is just a great verse to to think about and meditate. It says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Remember when it talks about the name of God, this is about his reputation, his renown, what he is like. And it's... And the second part of that verse is, I will magnify him with what? With thanksgiving. And we talk about thanksgiving here. We're not talking about the the holiday. We're not talking about the meal, but with the giving of thanks. And so one of the ways that we glorify God, one of the ways that we we magnify him is by giving thanks to him. And so we, we have to do this. You were made to glorify God. That is purpose why God made us. Uh, that we are, we are here to, uh, to love God and to, to know him, to enjoy him forever, to glorify him. And an essential way that we glorify God is by giving thanks to him. And therefore, you were made to give thanks to God. And so if you're living a life without giving thanks to God, uh, it's going to go about as well for you as a car with no oil in the engine at all. Okay, we are made for this. We're made to, to run on the thanks of God, to, to glorify him in this way. Think of all the different ways that to, to thank him is synonymous with to praise him. You know, in Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme with sounds. They rhyme with ideas. And so when you look at Psalms or Proverbs especially, you can find two lines. And oftentimes they basically say the same thing in two different ways. So in Psalm 69.30, I will praise the name of God with a song. Okay, so we praise him, we, we sing. The words that come out of our mouth, this, this lifts him up. It gives him praise. It glorifies him. And another way to say this, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. So to praise him and to magnify him are basically the same thing. And with our lips, how we, how we praise him and how we thank him are ways that this happens, ways that we are meant to, to glorify God. And remember, we don't magnify God the way that a microscope takes something that's actually small and makes it look bigger than it is. 
we magnify God the way a telescope magnifies a, a distant star that is huge, but only looks small because it's so far off. God is awesome, and God is, is big and huge. And when we thank him, in our heart and in the watching world, we are helping everyone to see him for the great and good and awesome God that he really is. It's part of why it's so good to do this, that giving thanks to God glorifies God. Another verse, Psalm 50. You were made to glorify God, therefore you were made to give thanks to God. See this in other places too. Psalm 50, verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. So again, just straight out saying that this is a way that you glorify God by, by giving your thanks to him. If you want to live for the glory of God, we want to give thanks to him. 2 Corinthians 4.15 For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, as the gospel goes out, more people are made Christians as they trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. As grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So people are saved, which causes them to give more thanks to the Lord out of a heart of gratitude in response for the gift of salvation and knowing him, and that leads to God being glorified. So this idea of thanks and having gratitude uh, is so important because it ties directly into the main purpose why you and I exist. The main reason God brought us into this world, why he created this world, for his glory. So we need to thank him. We need to be thinking about him and remembering him and giving him this praise giving him this, this thanks from our hearts. And thinking about this, thinking about Thanksgiving and the way this is worded in Scripture, and we're going to be talking about this more in the coming weeks, but this is a good thing to just realize. When we think of Thanksgiving or the giving of thanks, there's at least two parts to this. Two essential things if we're doing this right. And one is actually being thankful. Okay? So you have to actually have this come from your heart. That there's actual gratitude in your heart to God for, for what he has given us. And the second part of that is then expressing that thanks. Actually, the, the giving of thanks, that's why it's thanksgiving, because we're expressing this, we're, we're giving this. And just think about how you need to have both of these for it to really make sense. Uh, if you don't have the actual thankfulness that's in your heart, you know, we're just going through the show, you know, it can be like, it, it's a good thing, you know, if you have Thanksgiving dinner to, uh, like Adam mentioned, uh, to go around and, you know, have people express things that they're thankful for. And maybe you've been to one of those meals where there's, you know, somebody there, a kid, you know, and uh, they're being made to do this, but there's not a lot of real gratitude that's coming out of their heart. And they're thinking, they're like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be wearing this sweater. And I want to have to be doing this. I want to get back to my video games. I'm going to say what I'm thankful for. All right, I'm thankful for the corn. Yeah. So really? You're really thankful for the corn or you just saw the corn? I mean, it's great to be thankful for the corn. I'm thankful for my spoon. Okay. I mean, if you're really thankful for things, that's awesome. I mean, spoons are great and corn is great. But, you know, have something. I guess I would challenge you guys if you're, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. Take some time to really think about it. You know, what are the things that you're really thankful for? And they can be the everyday things because there's lots of everyday things we take for granted. And they can also be the big, profound things and anything in the middle because every good gift is from God. 
but we need to work on our hearts so that when we express the thanksgiving, it actually is coming from a heart that really is thankful. Not just a heart that takes these things for granted or just expects them always to be there. I mean, that's when we think of the pilgrim story. That's part of why they were so thankful. I mean, part of it, they had good theology. They knew the Lord. They knew what the grace of God meant and what Jesus Christ had to do to save them. And they had also gone through some really hard suffering. They knew that uh, just having a warm house to live in, having your health, having any food to eat was not something that we just take for granted. But that's what we do today. We just expect it to be there and we expect every flavor that we want and it to be exactly what we want and and we're entitled to it and if we don't get it, then we're mad because we didn't get it instead of being grateful for what we we do have. So we want to have hearts that actually are filled with the gratitude and then we want to express it. We want to say it. I mean, what would it be like if you had, you know, thanks for your, your, your spouse and what they did, but you never ever told them? You have someone else. At some point, you've got you to express it. You've got to communicate this to them and, and let others hear about this as well too. And how much more for the Lord that we're expressing this, we're telling Him, we're articulating this. And even a living a life that it's not just words, but showing that this really is our heart that we really are grateful to God for what he has given us. So giving thanks, giving thanks to God glorifies God. And another key truth, and we're going to keep coming back to this during this series, is the truth that the giver gets the glory. The one who gives the good gifts is the one that that gives the glory. And God is the giver. He is the ultimate giver where every good thing comes from. And if you don't believe me on that, believe the Bible and the book of James. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So every good gift, this isn't just some things you can thank God, you know, for some, some things, but other things, you know, it's from uh, someone else. Uh, or it's from us. Or we did that. I earned that. No, it's everything is from God. Directly, indirectly. But he is the source of all of this. If it is genuinely a good gift, it is from him. Acts 17, Paul, talking to uh, people in Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You know, the people thought that they, uh, you know, the Greeks, they thought that their Greek gods, they had to serve their gods, you know, or else their, their gods would just shrivel up and die if they didn't have worship. Um, but he's saying God is, the real God's not like that. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Every good gift is from him. He is the source of all of this. We need him. He doesn't need us. We do give to him. We give him our thanks. We give him our praise. But when we do that, we are giving back to him what he has already given to us. Uh, it's like C.S. Lewis said. It's, it's like the child that takes the money that, uh, that dad gives to the child and buys dad a present. You know, it's, it, it's from dad, it's going back to him. The dad is still pleased with it, but he is not the richer for it. And in the same way, God gives us this. So 
we never want to think that we are the ones serving God in the sense that he needs us and he better be really happy that I'm here to, to do what he needs to do and man, God would just be lost if he didn't have me. But we think that way sometimes. And when we do that, we're trying to make, it's very subtle sometimes, but then the glory goes to me because I'm the one given to the Lord. We are the ones that we receive. We receive from the Lord. Anything that we give to him, we're just giving back to him. We're reflecting back to him. He is the one that gets the glory. When we think about thanksgiving, we need to remember that thanksgiving, it needs to be expressed to someone. It needs to be given to someone. And as we become more and more of a a secular society, thanksgiving makes very little sense sometimes. I mean, if you don't believe in God, who are you giving thanks to? I'm here to thank no one for all these great things that I have. Thank you, no one. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I say, well, I thank the universe. And people talk like that. I'm thankful to the universe for giving me this. The universe doesn't know you. The universe doesn't care about you. If there's no God, the universe is just a bunch of rocks and gas floating around. It has no idea who you are. It doesn't care about you. And it just assume that you die and it doesn't know. And one day it is going to kill you. Okay? And if you last long enough, something's going to blow up or uh, the universe is going to have heat death. It doesn't know you. It didn't plan for you. It didn't care for you if there is no God at all. So don't be thanking the universe. Okay? If you do that, that's idolatry. That's putting a created thing in the place of the creator. That's what Romans says. That's, that is what idolatry is. God is the one who made the universe. He is the one that is the source of all these things. Thanksgiving only makes sense if you know and understand the Lord and that every good gift is really from Him. Now, some people will say, well, I'm thankful for other people because there are other people in our lives that do good things for us. And there's some truth to that. And we should be thankful for other people that God uses, but He uses them as, as instruments you know, they're, they're channels, but ultimately it's still from the Lord, even if he's working through other people. But even if you think of other people, that you can't thank other people for everything because there's so many blessings that we have that, that don't even come through other people at all. And so you can't really express this gratitude unless ultimately you acknowledge the Lord and that he is the source of all of this. And that God gives us all of this by his grace. You know, the Greek word for, for thanks or for thanksgiving is, is from the same root word as grace. And grace means gift. It means free gift. That God has given us something. And so we're expressing thanks. Uh, the uh, charis is the word for grace. And um, the thanksgiving would be eucharistai. So you have the word for you, which means good. And then charist which is so good gift. So God has given us good gifts and our thankfulness is the the fitting and proper response to God that gives us these good gifts. So unless you understand grace and that what we have is things that we don't deserve, but it's given to us by the goodness of God and in a real sense bought for us by the blood of Christ so that he can treat us with mercy and grace, instead of what our sins actually deserve. We need to understand that so we can really thank him. So thanksgiving is the fitting and proper response to God's grace. 
realize the gifts that you've been given and give thanks and glorify the giver. We receive from God in order to give God the glory. God is the giver of so many good things, and he wants to give to us, not because he has made us into idols, not because we are the center of the universe. We don't think that way. And we're not to be like selfish black holes that we just take everything in. He gives us good gifts, and we're to use it for others, and we're to reflect that back to him in, in grace and in gratitude. But he gives us these things because he deserves to be glorified. And by giving us this, we get to understand his goodness. We understand his greatness, that he is the one that can supply these things, that he is good, that he is, that he is faithful to us. And through this, we see the love and the care and the character of God. So don't let yourself think you're the giver. Don't let yourself think that God is just giving you what he deserves you. Contemplate the riches of his grace that God has poured on us. The Bible says over and over again, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord because of these things. In the Bible, Thanksgiving is not a meal. When you see the word in Scripture, it's not talking about a meal. It's not talking about a a holiday that's on the calendar. Thanksgiving is an act of worship. It is something that we do. It is not something that we eat. It is not just a, a day on the calendar that we commemorate. It is something that you do. So this year, and this Thursday coming up, do Thanksgiving on this Thanksgiving. And as you reflect on the grace that God gave you, especially the grace of salvation that he's given you in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again, who took your sins, who gave you salvation that you receive by trusting him alone. And I pray that you have done that. Uh, if you are not yet a Christian, know that the greatest gift is available to you. All the work has been done. You just need to receive this gift than all of the other many blessings that he gives us, every single thing in our lives. Reflect on this. Do thanksgiving, this thanksgiving, for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You truly are the giver of every good gift. And Lord, we acknowledge that we do not deserve these. If we did, these would not be gifts. You would just be giving us our wages that we are due. But instead of sinners, we realize that the wages of sin is death. And so we give you praise that you do not give us what our our sins deserve, but in Christ, you treat us with what Christ deserves, what he has earned for us in our place, Lord God. Lord, help anyone here that is not in Christ, who does not know your salvation. Help them to turn to you and to receive this gift, that they would know salvation and they would have hearts full with gratitude. And for those of us here that that are believers already, change our hearts and fill our hearts overflowing with praise and gratitude for you. And may our lives be full of thanksgiving unto the glory of God. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.